Let's pray. Let's pray to our Father. Lord God, we thank you so much for, um, for the Sabbath, for the rest, for the good that you do in, in us and through us. You know uh, where each of us are at at this point, what comfort we need, what conviction. We pray, Father, that you would meet us there at that point, that you would heal us, that you would lead us out of the darkness into deeper and more glorious light. We thank you for the Sabbath rest and all that it, it promises to us. We pray, Father, that we would uh, not take it lightly, but that we would rejoice in it solemnly. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So, uh, Jesus says in the Great Commission, found in Matthew twenty-eight nineteen, Go therefore, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Go forth and make disciples. Now, this whole series that I've done has not been about that <laughs> because I think there's an, an important um, juxtaposition going on here. If we're going to go out and make disciples, I think it's important to understand what a disciple is. Um, we ought to talk a great deal about how to go out and make disciples. I think, I think we all could use uh, a great deal of reflection and, and learning on what that is. But we're not going to be able to go out and make disciples if we ourselves are not engaging in the process of discipleship. That's the reality. And so this is now the seventh sermon. This is the finale. This is the review session where I want to put it all together. Okay? What is discipleship? Why should we be about that? What does that mean? Right? It's not just what we go out and do, but what is being done to us? What is God doing to us through this process? Discipleship is the relationship between believers and God, okay? And that's what the mission of the church is, to go out and to introduce people to make them understand how much they need God, to introduce this relationship to them. The emptiness in your life, the darkness that you feel, the wandering around aimlessly, all of that is because you don't know Jesus Christ, okay? That's our message to the world. But if, if we aren't living like we need a Savior, if we aren't living like the gospel is true and really overcoming the world, right? Who's going to listen to us? I don't, I don't actually don't want to associate with those people, right? You just come for the things that the church offers apart from Jesus Christ. We all, the world needs to know this, how much we need Jesus, how much our lives are supposed to be about him. Mature disciples make disciples. So is Redeemer interested in seeing the gospel go forth in the world? I think that we are. I think we are interested in seeing the gospel go forth in the world. We all, I think, if you polled all of us, we want to see Snow King kneel to the true and living God, Jesus Christ. We want that. So if you are, if you are committed to that, the only way to make disciples is to be a committed disciple yourself. Okay, But what are you committing yourself to? What, is the, what does it cost you? When you say, yes, I want to get into this process of discipleship, what is it that you're getting into? I think it's a really important um, for all of us to count the cost. Because I, I remember in the early days, I counted the cost, and at the time, I was so zealous, I didn't care. Right? I'll take it. I'll, I'll give up everything. I stopped to call in the friends that I had. I stopped going to the places I went to. It was easy. Okay, well, now, 12 years later, right, it's important. Counting the cost actually, in some ways, is far more difficult to bear the cost. <laughs> it, it's quite remarkable how it works. In the beginning, right, you don't know how much you don't know. 
And, and you're like, sure, I'll sign me up for that. That sounds great. But, but the more I know, the more I realize it, it is a great cost to follow Jesus. So we should wrap our minds around the cost. Okay, discipleship is the process by which God is remaking us in his own image. Okay, it's, it's not the spiritual disciplines. It's not, uh, discipleship is not a process like we go out door to door, we have programs. It's not a program. Discipleship is the process by which God himself is remaking us. That's important to understand. Now, that obviously includes a great deal of things we ought to do. But as, as I've said before, so, much, so often discipleship goes, is just about that, what we do and don't do. And I want to look beyond all of that to see what's really underlying it. It's what he's doing to us. That's what discipleship is. We know from Genesis 1.26 that God desired to make us in his image. He said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. That was the point in the beginning. He wanted little miniatures of himself. He created a world that someone like him would enjoy, that someone like him would make something out of. Okay? And then what we did, Satan comes along and attacks that. Right? He doesn't want you to eat the fruit because then you'll be like him and you'll know the difference between good and evil. So from the very beginning, this image bearing is what it's all been about. God does want us to be like him. That's why he made us. Okay? And when we tripped and fell in the garden, it's like we whacked our face on the ground and that picture of Jesus that we had in our face was all twisted and bent. Right? The nose is busted and turned and the eyes gouged out. And, right? we, we look like a... It's like Lord of the Rings, right? The, the orcs are like deformed, um, cursed elves. So you see the elves in the movie, they're beautiful. And you see the orcs and they're ugly, right? But you can kind of see how they're sort of based on elves. This is, this is what it's like for us, right? We looked like God. We looked like God. And we fell and smashed our face and we don't anymore. We look like a really ugly, grotesque picture of him. And so God the Father sent Jesus in the image and likeness of man to remake man in the image and likeness of Jesus. Okay, that's what he did. It, this is a transfer. The entire faith, your entire life is a transfer. His life for yours. Right? And once you accept his life for yours, then you can get down to the real work, the real cost. So this is what this whole series has been about. God wants you to be an image of him. He does. Okay, and so he gives you a bunch of things you're supposed to do to go out and image him in the world. Now, when I say image him, um, what I mean by that is reflect him, show him forth, right? Look like him in the world. So I'm going to say this phrase, imaging him in the world. And what I mean by that is walking around like a metaphor, like a simile of God. We're like God, okay? That's what a simile is. You're like something else. So when we love things, we love like he loves. When we eat, we eat like he eats, Okay. When we do all the things that we do, we do it like he does it. Okay? That's imaging him in the world. That's what he calls us to. Now, <laughs> I know, we don't do that. <laughs> we don't do that. Love like he loves. That's funny. We try, though, don't we? We try. That's why one of the, the sermons in the series was disciples fail Jesus. Because we have big plans to go big and honor him and do big things for him, and we fall flat. Okay, but... As we saw in that sermon, he, that's not the end of the story. He's working through your success. He's working through your failures. He, now, he gives you things to go and do in the world. And as you're doing them, you're trying to be him in the world. Now, what's amazing about that is as you're trying to do that, he's actually recreating you. Okay, you're trying to recreate him in this world, and as you're doing that, he's recreating you. That's what discipleship is about. 
So as we talk about discipleship in the future, this is the thing that we have to remember, okay? We don't just sit down with people and we say, okay, pray and read your Bibles and stop watching R-rated movies, right? And don't curse because that's what, that's what Jesus would have done, right? It's about those things on some extent. But if you just boil discipleship down to that, it's, it's going to fail. You have to understand, as we're going out and trying to be him in the world, he's actually making us like him. This is very important. This is, there, that's where the hope is. That's where the joy is. That's where we get our strength. Right? As much as we try, he's actually doing it. God is remaking us into miniatures of himself. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, Those who follow Jesus are destined, destined to bear his image and to be the brethren of the firstborn son of God. Their destination is Christ-likeness. We are called to always have the image of Jesus before our eyes, and beholding him adoringly, his image penetrates into the depths of our being, fills us, and makes us more and more like our master. Okay? So the more and more of our life we bring under his lordship, the more and more we focus on him, the more and more we make him the point, that this is what it does. It changes us from the inside out. That's why the new man is in here, and we live our lives until we die, and then the external portion of us gets, right, we get a new body. He starts inwardly and works out. He's really doing it. The way that God is doing this is twofold. He calls us to re-image ourselves based on the model of Jesus, to conform, obey, submit, and serve Jesus, his kingdom and his priorities and his way of life. This is what he's called us to do. And as we struggle to obey this calling, he is, in fact, re-imaging us eternally. Okay. The first part of discipleship is using the pattern of Jesus to image God in the world. Okay. He is the only true man that ever lived. What ought man be like? What should mankind be like? Well, God came and lived a life to show us. And so the more we know about that pattern, the more we can imitate it, the more we can bring it into the, uh, to every area of our lives. Our calling as believers is to image or project Jesus to a watching and a needy world. Doesn't this world need him? Doesn't this world need him? It does. And you are supposed to be him in the world. You're not supposed to replace him. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But you're supposed to be a reflection of him, an image of him. Um, I I love art. I love buying, uh, because obviously I cannot afford an actual Van Gogh. I like... (laughs) Reprints, because you can take that Van Gogh and you can slap it up, you can put it on your mouse pad, you can put it on your coffee cup, right? Everywhere you go, you can have those images. That, that's what we're like. We're little images that go out into the world. Everyone sees it, they see him. They hear us, they hear him. They know us, they know him. That's how it's supposed to be. This was St. Patrick's prayer, right? Christ within me, Christ beside me, Christ before me, Christ behind me. When they hear me, hear you. When they see me, see you. This is what we want to do. Now, the first step to doing this, okay, obviously is salvation. But this isn't a a sermon series on how you are saved, okay? The assumption here is you're already justified by faith. Now, after that happens, the first thing you have to do is deny yourself. Luke 9.23, and he said to all, Jesus said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Denying ourselves, bearing our crosses, and following Jesus. That's the plan. Deny your self-determination. You deny your self-gratification to follow Jesus in a life of shameless service of others. 
glorifying the Father as he did. Okay, it's not about you. It's not about what you want. It's not about your pleasures. It's not about your plans. Now, that is a difficult place to begin. But this is why it says daily. Right? Remember that goofy thing I wanted you guys to do? Dance on your own grave, singing the glory of Patri. Right? That's what we need to do every day. When our hearts rest in who Christ is and what he is doing, all competing affections will, um, will be driven from our hearts. When he is set up here, when we deny ourselves that place on, our, on the throne of our hearts and put him there, everything else falls into line. Okay? This ceases to be an idol factory if Jesus is sitting on the throne. We want to follow Jesus, but something is in the way. Okay? This is, it says daily here. Why? Well, why is because every morning you, go, you want to get up and you want to follow him. I believe that you do. But there's always something in the way, isn't there? There's something that keeps you from being patient and kind and just and self-controlled. There's something in the way. And this series has not been about you go home and stare at your navel until you figure it out. That's where I think, again, this this whole content usually goes wrong. We have to ask the question that Peter asked. Why can't I follow you? We ask him. Why, Jesus, can't I follow you? You need to ask it, your family needs to ask it, and we need to ask it as a church. Because something's in the way. And this whole series has been, I've been poking and prodding like like a doctor, trying to figure out internally with you where is the problem. Why aren't you following him? And I just, week after week, I'm just shaking the tree as hard as I can to see what falls out. So go home. This is a list I want you to pray about. Okay, it could be something I don't even mention here because, again, we are quite something when it comes to sin. Why can't I follow you? You, your family, this church, why? What's in the way? Okay. These, are some, these are some things that Christ is calling us to that, that prevent us from following him, this, this list. And this is going to be all the things we covered so far. Denying ourselves, that's the first one. Are you denying yourself? If you're not denying your own self-pleasure, your own self-determination, your self-gratification, you're never going to follow it. That's the chief idol in all of our lives. Me, myself, and I. That's the chief idol. Jesus says in Luke 14.33, So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Renounce it. Deny it. This is what Peter did, again, when he was being tested the three times. He, he denied knowing Jesus. I don't know the man. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what person you're referring to. That's how we have to be towards ourselves. Right? You get into a situation, self comes up, self wants, and you're like, nope, I don't even have any idea what you're, I, nope, I don't know you at all. And you do that daily, every day. Dance on that grave, sing in the glory of Padre. Okay? Because Christ has to be on the throne of our hearts. Now, secondly, we have to be, okay, once we've denied ourselves, okay, we no longer have our own plans, our own pleasures, our own gratification. What replaces it? Because if you just deny yourself, suddenly all these other idols are going to come flooding into the vacuum, and you're going to have seven spirits worse than the first. So what you have to do is study the one whom should be on the throne. You have to be students of Jesus. Deny yourselves and study him. Okay, now, again, this is all review, so I'll just cover these things quickly. Jesus said, follow me. Okay, that, that meant something very specific in Palestine in the first century. He literally meant, follow me, right? I'm going to walk down the road, and you're going to go with me. 
And you're going to watch what I do, and you're going to do it. I'm going to talk, you're going to memorize it. Right? That's what the uh, initial disciples were meant to do. And that's what we're meant to do. Follow him. Watch him. Observe him. Study him. Right? How does he react to taxes? How does he react to um, hypocrites? How does he react to his own family members who, who think he's gone mad with this whole Christianity thing? How does he react in all those situations? Now, I know, what, you know this is the problem for us. Well, I mean, isn't that slightly unfair? Because you know, Peter is like following Jesus. He's got Jesus right there. It's hard to learn Jesus' table manners when you're not sitting at the table with him. It is, right? But, but we have something they don't have. We have something that they don't have. 1 Corinthians 6.17, but the he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Okay, hopefully you guys remember this. It was like four weeks ago, five weeks ago. We have one spirit with the Lord. Okay? Our, our spirit and his spirit are now one. So when we're reading the New Testament, we have the Spirit of God who teaches us things that the people who were sitting there couldn't possibly have known. And so we're not at a disadvantage. Okay, We're not at a disadvantage. The Spirit of God, as you're reading the Scriptures, will reveal things to you, especially if you're trying to have him reveal. Right? If you're going to him and praying and saying, listen, I need to know Jesus better. Reveal him to me. As the guys were coming down from the Transfiguration, Right? This, is, this is what happened all the time. There, there's all this disunity between Jesus and his own disciples. They're f- super confused about what he's doing. Not after when the Spirit comes, though. After the Spirit comes, they remember everything he did, and they understand it perfectly. So that's the stage we're at. We have his Spirit. We read the Transfiguration, and we could go back, meet Peter on his way down from the mountain, and we could explain it to him. So we're not at a disadvantage from those guys. Right? But the calling is the same. They got up and they followed him every day. Do you get up and do you follow him every day? How well do you know him? What was his favorite thing to eat? Does that seem like an absurd question? What area did he spend most of his time in? How often did he pray? What's, what, why are there four Gospels? Seems excessive, isn't it? (laughs) It's not like King David has three or four different books about him. Four Gospels. Why would they do that? Why are they so different? Who is this guy? Why did he think, I mean, did he have a sense of humor? This is one of my favorite uh, misunderstandings about him. Because people in the Middle Ages sometimes would be very offended by the fact that you would say Jesus had a sense of humor and told jokes. Because it seems irreverent. He did. He had a great sense of humor. If you go back and you read the story about the the money in the fish's mouth, I mean, he's cracking a smile the whole time. It's just we don't understand it. Why not? I mean, he says, follow me every day. How well do you know him? If, If I started out, if I gave you a questionnaire about your spouse and a questionnaire about Jesus, how would you do? Would you know Jesus as well as your spouse? Would you know neither? That's a whole other series right there, I guess. (laughs) How well do you know this guy? It's important that we study him. And and, right, just because he's not present physically present with you is not a you have the Spirit of God. First Corinthians two, nine through eleven, but as it is written, what no eye has seen nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, beyond what we've even imagined, 
what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person, which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God, and you have that Spirit. So, what's the problem? What's the problem? Now, the, the next thing that we have to get into here is mortifying sin and enlivening virtue. Okay? And I had that story about my friend who's got the front yard that looks immaculate and the backyard um, that doesn't. This is, uh, Lane was over at my house, and one of the kids goofily uh, opened the garage door, which they weren't supposed to do, and Lane said, I found your backyard. <laughs> that was a good moment. That was funny. Right? Because nobody goes in there. Nobody goes in there. I, I have funny stories about being exposed. Justin went in there one time to find some ice cream for the kids. I was pretty impressed. Sorry, Justin. <laughs> but it's good, right? Right? Why didn't I like that? Because I don't want people to see that. I want people to, right? We spend 20 minutes cleaning up really viciously just before you guys all come over, and I don't want you guys to see what we actually live in. I mean, nobody wants that. Five kids, homeschoolers. I mean, nobody wants to actually see what that looks like during the week. Right? And so I was embarrassed. But this is bearing your cross. It's a cross. It's public shame. And if you sin, there's going to be public shame. And, and, and you're not going to bear it. You're not going to deal with it until you've denied yourself. Until you want to be like this person who at, at all costs did not care what he endured to glorify the Father and love others. So that's the program. That's the program. Mortify sin and enliven virtue. Okay, these things go together. If you have a rose bush, there's two ways to help it grow. You tear the weeds out and you give it food. Right? You go to the store that conveniently have a special product that you can buy that just is for roses. So you, you sprinkle that on the ground, and so what you're doing is you're killing the weeds and you're enlivening the rose bush. And this is what we have to do. We have to study Christ, understand what the true virtues of the Bible are, and enliven those while at the same time weeding out the sin. We've got to dig it out as far down as we have to go. Okay? And occasionally we have to let the kids accidentally open the garage door. What would be better is to just simply throw it open and be like, could somebody please come help me clean this thing out? That was an invitation. <laughs> right? But bearing your cross. Get somebody involved in this. It's public. You're, I mean, someone just this week, I was talking to them, and they, they had the revelation that marriage, is, 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 it makes public all of your private sins. <laughs> it's like, yes, yes. Right? And then it doesn't take long, and the two of you, because you're clever sinners, figure out how to just keep it between yourselves. Right? What, what, this whole community needs to be about this. This is, the, this is why we're talking about it. Throw the garage door open. Let somebody in the backyard, let somebody see what's growing there and deal with it. Deal with it. Romans 8.13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This is the program that that the apostles explain. More of one thing, less of the other, right? More virtue, less sin. Get out, dig out the sin, enliven the virtue. That's what you have to do if you're about this process of discipleship. Because, right, Jesus didn't have any sin. And if you want to be like him, you got a lot of digging to do, right? It's going to take more than a shovel. It's going to take a backhoe. It's going to take a lot of people. 
you got to get down to the roots because when you get down there, right, and you, and you pull it out, he'll burn it. He has a pile that's been burning since he came out of the tomb. And that's where we all take the sin. But it takes work to get it out of the ground. He'll deal with it once you get it out. Okay, but it doesn't just happen by osmosis. The sin doesn't just magically disappear. You've got to actually call it what it is and take it to him for him to deal with it. Put sin to death and enliven virtue. Okay, the last thing that we discussed, the last big one, was worship. Imaging God in this world is about worship. Okay, and, and worship, as we covered, is not about coming here once a week and singing some awesome songs behind an awesome band, right? Having a little, having a little bread and wine, listening to a message that makes us feel better, right? Or that we, or this is how how often do we come here and we find the message we've been looking for for the other person? <laughs> you won't you won't believe how often my the pastor preaches exactly what my husband needs to hear. It's amazing, <laughs> right? That that's not worship. That's not worship. In the Old and the New Testament, the word for worship comes from service. This is what Adam was told to do in the garden, serve and keep the garden. This is what the priests were told to do, serve and guard your priesthood. This is what it's about, service. David understood this because in Psalm 84.10, he said, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. This is the king. He would rather give up all that he's got. This is why he had a heart after God's, a heart like God's. He, want, he would give all that up if he could just be the doorman for Jesus. Right? I mean, how often do we mock that job? Right? The Walmart greeter, the person that greets us at Costco. It's always kind of a joke, right, that job. Because they're, you know, I mean, <laughs> you could really get anybody to do it if they can speak. And so culturally, that's like, I, I realized even after I preached this the first that's something we mock all the time. Somebody made a joke about a doorman at, at Walmart. Well, at least I'm not a doorman at Walmart. What's wrong with being a doorman? Especially if it's in the house of God. I'd rather be a doorman there than, than the king of the, all the other lands, right? That's what we hope we say. That's what David said. But so often, you know, we'll take butler, we'll take assistant cook, you know, we'll take floor manager. We, we want something with more dignity. Nobody wants to be the doorman. That's what he wants. He wants that kind of service. He wants you to, no matter what, be a part of that household, even if it means being a mere doorman. In the prodigal son story, he's not really ready to be the son until he's ready to be the servant. Because as he's digging there in the trough, eating with the pigs, he thinks to himself, you know, the servants of my father eat better than this. So I'm going to go back and beg him just for a job working the door. And, and he, now he's ready to be the son. So in your life, are you ready to be a doorman? Are you ready to be a slave, a servant, who, whose will is the master's will? Your whole life is not about you, not about your magnificent program to change the world, but about him and his program to change the world. It's an important question, one that we have to struggle with. Right? You have to go home and pray about this. Is that good enough for you, being his slave? doing his will. Everything we've covered so far, denying ourselves, being Jesus' student, mortifying sin, enlivening virtue, and serving Jesus is discipleship. That's what it is. It's a way of following Jesus through every day of our lives. Now, the problem is we aren't. 
Not every day. That's not what we're about, generally. It's not what I'm about, generally. And we have to deal with that. Doing these things is laying down our life and taking up his. Jesus spoke metaphorically of the seed, self, that must die in order to bear fruit. John 12, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Would you rather be a dead seed all by yourself in the ground? Or the branch, one branch on a magnificent tree bearing the fruit of the Spirit? Because discipleship is about that. You're not a seed anymore. You're one branch in a big tree. But the fruit that you bear is his. The, the glory of your life is his. The goodness in it. Right? Pleasure forevermore at his right hand. That's what he wants. You have to die to yourself. You have to take up that cross. You have to dig deeper. You have to find out what's... Right? Ask him, what, why can't I follow you? And be willing to deal with the answer. Right? We, we don't ask it because we don't want to know. It's much easier not to ask. Because then we just go along our merry way and just medicate the, medicate the grief. Pretend like it's not there. The surrender of our control leads to a community that is addressing social justice issues which conform to God's kingdom mission. The hermeneutical key to the cost of discipleship is thus not self-deprecation, but surrender of self-determination, self-preservation, and self-gratification. When we commit ourselves to the lifelong struggle of discipleship, we are committing ourselves to Jesus' plan. That's the cost. It's not too high. <laughs> Doesn't sound too difficult. Right? Except like Peter, we have high hopes for ourselves and we can't do it. Right? This is what I love. I mean, if I were a, a better parent, I would think of this all the time because kids give us this opportunity always. No, you, you did fail. You, there was no way you were going to succeed. <laughs> right? Nobody wants to tell their kids that. But it's true. You, you did it on your own, and you failed. Right? You're seeking yourself, and you failed. But what the, the thing that you tell your children is that, no, it, you need Jesus. Right? You're out there seeking your own glory. You're out there doing your own thing, and, and, and you failed. And, and every time we do, we do. Right? I'll die for you, Jesus, just like Peter. It's exactly what we do. Put me in, coach. I'll win. And we go out there and we look like utter fools. Right? God wants to change us. Right? There's a great deal of hope and goodness in the fact that he takes us as we are. You don't have to do anything. Just come. There's an equal amount of grace and goodness in the fact that he doesn't leave us that way. And this is where we get really confused. We put one before the other. We feel like you got to do a bunch of stuff to be approved, right? And then it's just easy coasting. He takes me as I am. But it's the other way around. He takes you as you are. Thank God. He doesn't leave you that way. Thank God. The hope of heaven. Okay, the hope of heaven is what we need. No matter how much you try and fail, he gives you the, the ability to repent. And repentance is dest destruction. When you repent, you destroy yourself. When you repent, you destroy your idols. And you turn your attention back on him. Repentance and turning towards him. This is how we deal with the failure. Because he took care of all of the, th all of the roadblocks. 
When he says, listen, you can't follow me because you're following yourself, that's your opportunity to repent, to destroy that idol, and get on the right path. And then what, what you do is by degrees, you, you become more and more like him. All these threads of discipleship together form a tapestry, and, and the image on the tapestry is Jesus Christ. The more we try to do, to be him, to look like him, to act like him, the more he is making us like him. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Now, this is all the way back to the very first awkward sermon I did here uh, at the beginning of the sabbatical, where I talked about the fact that we're turning into gods. I am not backing away from that statement. Okay, I'm not. Essence means the intrinsic. When it says nature here, he means the intrinsic nature or indispensable quality of something, the thing that doesn't die, the thing that never perishes. We will partake in God's essence, deal with it, right? We don't like that. People don't like to hear that. You're going to have his essence, right? When we talk about the world shakes and the thing that doesn't move is him, at one point, right, he's going to shake everything that exists on the final day, and all of it is going to die, and the, the unshakable will remain. And that's what's been implanted in you, you're rooted and grounded in love. You're, you're now building on the rock that's Christ. That's the foundation. And, and you, too, like him, will not be shaken. Now, the problem you're shaken now and you're falling all the time is because what you're building on isn't the rock of Christ. You dig down through the sand and you hit dirt and you think, this is hard, this is hard, this must be bedrock, you build on it. And then the earth shakes and the house falls. And you're like, I... That wasn't Jesus. So you dig a little further down, you get through the dirt, you get to the gravel. You're like, oh, this is, this is a lot harder. This is bedrock. You build on that. What happens? World shakes, house falls. You got to keep digging. You got you to gotta build it on Christ. Okay? And he'll keep shaking the house, the false house, and knocking it down until you, you get on the right thing, until you get on him. You're building on him. And then what he does is he makes you like that bedrock. He makes you like the bedrock. Okay, listen to what Christ has promised to you. Just listen for a second. Okay, I'm, I'm not speaking some sort of pantheistic mumbo-jumbo. It's not that I've read too much Greek mythology or too much C.S. Lewis. God is making you into something else. Philippians 3, 20 through 21. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Ephesians 4.24, to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. True righteousness and holiness. 1 John 3.2, beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know 
then when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Romans 8.29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. By making us into little gods, the triune God does not deprive himself of his own authority any more than making men into kings, into priests, or fathers deprives him of his ultimate authority or distinction as the king, the priest, the father. By making fathers, he's no less a father. Okay, and so he doesn't, right? This is the first objection I usually hear. But, whoa, whoa. You want to make us out to be like him? You're stealing from him. No, I'm not. He's enriching all of us. He's making us all wealthy beyond imagining. He makes us like him, little tiny gods that live forever with glorious bodies like his, ruling and reigning where he is ruling and reigning in heaven. Deuteronomy 10.17 says that he is the God of gods. He's the God of gods. He's the Lord of lords because there really are other lords. He is the king of kings because there really are other kings all of which derive their attributes and authority as such from him. Allah and Balaam are no gods. They're nothing. That's not the other gods he's talking about. You're the other gods they're talking about. The triune God made men in his likeness, bearing his image to be beings like himself. We have to cope with that, with what the promises of the gospel truly mean. Okay, It's what is really happening to us. So why are we fooling about He wants you to live forever like and be like him in heaven with him forever. And he started that program now. So why aren't we all about that program? That transformation. Why isn't that the center of our lives? Why are we preoccupied with the things of this world? God is committed to eternal alteration, your eternal alteration. So committed, he racked and punished his own son to make a way for you to bear the image of the triune God forever. Have you grown apathetic towards the promises of the good life and the fullness of the Lord? Is it perhaps because you've built your house on dirt or sand? Are you following Jesus or yourself? Are you committed to change? Are you committed to to not remaining as you are. Not remaining in the patterns of sin, not remaining in the depression, not remaining in the apathetic coolness that has fallen on some of you. Are you about the change that he's about? He's all about it. He's all in. He's proven how far he's willing to go. How far are you willing to go? What is standing in your way? This is what we need to deal with. What is standing in our way? C.S. Lewis said this, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We are too easily comforted. 
we are too easily led astray. We are too easily distracted. What this whole series has been about is the culture of which God is calling to us, calling us to as a community. Do we need a savior? Do we need sanctification? Do you need a savior? Do you need sanctification? Are we focused on our big plans to change God's world while ignoring God's big plans for changing us, right? I want change. I I want a different election. I want different people running for office. I want a different culture. I want different schools. I want different everything. Change, 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 God. What's wrong with you? When really what he's trying to do is change you. That's what he wants. And, And if you resist that, Right? If that's what he is doing. And if you resist that, you're going to have all kinds of problems. Your life is going to be sad. Your life is going to be difficult until you get on this program where he wants you to change. The election is, is meant to change a great deal, a, a great many people's hearts. Right? Your children going astray is about your heart. The difficulties in your marriage is about your heart. The difficulties at work and finances is about your heart. And I, I pray that God would be gracious to you and relieve you of those things, but not at the expense of changing you. And this is the most difficult prayer I've ever had to learn. Change me, not my circumstances. Change me, not my circumstances. Because as a community, this is what we have to draw a line in the sand. And no matter where we go from here, what we're going to be doing, we have to get our hearts right about this, this process. Are we dedicated to, are we committed to change in our own lives? Or is it business as usual? Because business as usual, things aren't going to change. <laughs> See how that works? They're just going to get worse. C.S. Lewis also said that God's love is not wearied by our sins or our indifference, and therefore it is quite relentless in its determination that we shall be cured of those sins at whatever cost to us, at whatever cost to him. And he's proven how far he's willing to go to change you and to have you forever. How far are you willing to go? And like I did a few weeks ago, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end not with my words because they're sad and pathetic. Okay? We're going to end with his. Luke six forty six through 49. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against the house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of the house was great. Aren't you guys tired of the ruin? I'm tired of the ruin. I'm, I'm tired of the ruin in my life. I'm tired of the ruin in my family. I'm tired of the ruin in, in everyone else's life around me. And, and the ruin comes because what we were building on all along wasn't the bedrock that is Jesus Christ. And he is so committed to the change, at any cost to us, he's willing to get our attention back on Jesus. And if you keep running away from this process, he will keep chasing you as far as he has to go. Okay, and that's a little terrifying, actually, because he gets, a, he gets going speed when he's coming after you, and by the time he catches you, it hurts, right? This is, I, my kids ran away, run down the hall from me, 
and I run after them, and they come to a stop, and when I hit them, it doesn't feel good for anyone, especially them, okay? And, and this is what happens in so many of our lives and people's lives that we know. They're running as hard as they can away from him, and he's m- building momentum, and by the time he catches them, the house falls. Stop building your house on dirt. Dig deeper. Not sand, dig deeper. Not rock, dig deeper. Get to the bedrock. Get to Jesus, okay? It's not his stuff. It's not his kingdom. It's not merely just even his promises of what's going to happen, right? It's not like you just get paid out at the end in heaven. We have to dig all the way down and get to the bedrock where Jesus is, and that's where we need to build. That's where we need to build. He's committed to changing you into eternal sons of the living God. Are you committed to that? Dig deeper, build on the rock of Christ. And as you do, he will build a monument of himself out of your life. Wouldn't that be a glorious thing? An image worthy of his name that will stand forever. And amen. Father, we thank you so much again for your Sabbath. We thank you, Father, for taking us as we are. And we thank you, Father, for not leaving us thus. You sent your Son in the image and likeness of man to remake us all in the image and likeness of him. And I pray, Father, that we would all go from here and that we would not stare at our own navels, that we would not attack ourselves and tear ourselves down, but that we would go to the cross, we would go to the throne of Christ, and that we would ask, why can't I follow you? And I pray, Father, that you would open our eyes and ears to hear the answer and give us, Lord, by your spirit, the strength to endure it. Amen.